Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Akash Nandachi, regular host for the Animal Studies channel. And today I have the pleasure to speak with author, professor, anthropologist, ethnobotanist, photographer, and explorer in residence of the National Geographic Society, Professor Wade Davis. Um, Professor Davis currently teaches anthropology at the University of British Columbia, where he also serves as the BC Leadership Chair in Cultures and Ecosystems at Risk. And today we'll speak about his most recent book, Magdalena, Rivers of Dreams, published by Knopf in 2020. Uh, Professor Davis, it's a pleasure. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Akash. Uh, I absolutely love this book, and uh, not least uh, why, because it uses Magdalena not only to anchor the story, but also, uh, as you mentioned in the book, to demonstrate how the river made possible the nation. And I'm sure this concept isn't that foreign to many of our listeners or, or to anyone who might be familiar with the history of some of the great rivers of the world, uh, the, the Ganges, the Nile, the Mississippi. And um, I wonder if you could begin by maybe just discussing how you came to realize that this river was the ideal conduit uh, through which to tell the story of Columbia and, and how you managed to make it uh, a protagonist in, in, in the story. Well, thanks very much. I mean, the genesis of this book, like all books, is sort of in, 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 sometimes people think that uh, authors, you know, contemplate for years and anticipate possibilities and, and try to sort of uh, scam the potential marketplace. I've always found that book ideas come in a flash, like in a moment of serendipity. And in this case, I had been asked to go to Columbia, a country I know well and I love, uh, by an interesting team of journalists who had got support from one of the largest corporate citizens in Colombia to do a series of five illustrated books on the five major geographical regions of Colombia, um, the Central Cordillera, the Caribbean Coastal Plain, the uh, mysterious lowland forests of the Choco and the Pacific uh, shores of Colombia, and the great Amazon of Colombia, the size of France, and of course the eastern plains, the Llanos, that run away toward the Orinoco. And the idea of these books was to send a message to a new generation of Colombians. These books were not to be sold, but but presented as gifts to every library in the country as, as a way of saying to young kids that their country wasn't a place of violence and war, but a place of the greatest natural beauty on earth, which indeed it is. I mean, Colombia uh, is both topographically, ecologically, geographically, uh, and certainly biologically, the richest uh, country on the planet by far and away. Uh, there's no place in Colombia um, more than days removed from every known ecological niche to be found on the planet. Uh, and so having done these five books, I kind of quipped at a luncheon meeting, okay, we've done the land, let's do the rivers. And without hesitation, in that inimitable Colombian way, they said, great. And I said, well, we'll start with the Mother Magdalena. And the reason, you know, Magdalena is by no means the largest river in Colombia. Uh, it's dwarfed by the Amazon, the Caquetá, the Putumayo, the Valpez, um, uh, uh, the, the Guayana, uh, uh, which becomes the Orinoco, uh, the Rio Negro, rather. Um, but it is the artery of life. It's the, it's the conduit that made possible the settlement of this country. And in a way, it's the mirror image of its shadow to the north, the Mississippi. And in the same way that the Mississippi running uh, north to south became both a corridor of commerce and, and a kind of symbol of American culture, similarly, the Magdalena, which runs south um, to north, 
um, uh, the entire length of, of Colombia uh, is both the quarter of commerce, um, home to 80% of the Colombian people. It generates 80% of the national economy, but it's also a fountain of culture, of poetry, literature, and prayer. And it, it seemed to be the perfect um, metaphor to tell the story of the nation. I mean, one of the things that's so interesting about the impact of, of, of geography on the Colombian destiny, and of course, you know, in, in many ways, a landscape determines character, just as culture springs from a spirit of place. And, and whereas the settlements of, of Colombia, I mean, the, the river itself is born in the south, close to the Ecuadorian frontier in a rugged a knot of mountains known as the Colombian Massif or the Massizo Colombiano. And out of that rugged uh, volcanic ma- uh, a knot of mountains flow many of Colombia's great rivers, the Patia, which flows to the Pacific, the Putumayo, the Cacata, the great affluence of the Amazon, and of course the Cauca, which is the main tributary of the Magdalena and the Magdalena itself. And then also out of the Macizo emerged the three arms of the Andean Cordillera uh, that run way to the Caribbean coastal plain, to the east, the Cordillera Oriental, which forms a boundary between the mountainous heartland of the country and the eastern forests of the Amazon and the great plains of the Llanos, and then the Cordillera Central, which runs up the heart of the country until falling away in the great wetlands of the Caribbean coastal plain, and then to the west, the Cordillera Occidental, which forms the boundary between again, Andean Colombia, and this mysterious rainforest called the Choco, which is actually a remnant of the pre-Andean uh, geological epoch, in which, uh, at which time the Amazon did not flow into the Atlantic as it does today, but rather flowed into the Pacific. And so the Choco, which is again, a stretch of primary rainforest, the size of vast European countries, um, was actually a part of the Amazon cut off by the rise of the Andes. And so you have this whole nother uh, divergence of biological diversity there. And, and yet the cities of the hinterland of Colombia, their only access to international and even national commerce was by the Rio Magdalena. And the only way to get to the Rio Magdalena for much of Colombia's history were on the trails of the arrieros, these legendary muleteers who carried everything, the 250,000 Panama hats crafted in Medellin in 1915 alone, uh, the, 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 the product, uh, products of the hinterland, agricultural, gold from Segovia mines, uh, um, coffee, of course, from the lush fields of Antioquia, but, but also everything imported into Colombia had to come on the backs of mules. And so amazingly enough, at a time when Bogota, the capital, for example, was being described as the Athens of South America, a city of great institutions, museums, and uh, universities that date back to the 16th century, botanical gardens, not to mention the, the homes of the affluent and the vast barrios of the, of the um, working people. Uh, everything there, from uh, champagne to cologne, uh, to machine tools, to pianos, to... Uh, c- uh, cement, uh, concrete, uh, had to um, come to the capital on the back of a mule. Uh, light plants dismantled, cars dismantled and carried in pieces. Um, and so you had this kind of amazing kind of 
irony of, of, a, of a nation state woven together by the tracks of mules. And in, in fact, it was so much so that the, um, uh, the cost of a, of a bushel of Colombian coffee from Medellin, uh, you could send it to London, England cheaper than sending it across the country to Bogota. And so you had this sort of strange irony whereby the river of life was the Magdalena, but the Magdalena itself felt like a frontier because it was connected to the metropolitan centers, not just Medellin and, and Cali and, and Bogota, the well-known Colombian cities, but also Manizales, uh, Pereira, Neva. All of these were connected to the rest of the nation by the river. So the river very much defined the nation. It, it made possible the Revolutionary Wars. It, it, it uh, was a fountain of of literature. I mean, uh, people often talk about, um, you know, the legendary writer uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez as being sort of the, um, the who won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And in two of his novels, The Rivers isn't just um, the setting of his novels, it is actually a character in the novels itself. And, you know, it's interesting, we talk about magical realism as Gabo's gift to Latin American literature, but but Garcia Marquez was a journalist. He was an observer all of his life. We just happened to live in a land where heaven and earth converge on a regular basis to reveal glimpses of the divine. Yeah, I, I, I can picture the uh, the chapter just coming back to me. I think where one of your uh, people that your acquaintances that you meet on your journey, Catherine, discusses uh, how Gabo's character, you know, influenced her and. And the kind of enduring influence of, of, of the spirituality and in the myths surrounding the river, which you also show in some of the pictures uh, in, in the book, um, and uh, and kind of on the theme of, of trying to travel and and you know progressive progressive uh, populations either trying to conquer or or unify this region and, and the geography being such a central player there. Later, when you uh, discuss Medellin and, and your returning to the city, you're, you're walking through the neighborhood surrounding the botanical gardens and, and you're meeting some of your friends there. And, and a lot of it's shocking to you how, how much it's changed. And there's a metro now and there's a, um, a gondola that, that shoots over some of the barrios. And uh, in, in my own travels, I've, I've been to Ecuador and, and Quito, there's this Teleferico that, that traverses the city in a similar way. So how is it, what's, um, how's travel change in Colombia during your own lifetime and what's well, important all those changes all those changes are for the good um, look I, I think you know it, it's worth backing up because when people think of Colombia they, they they obviously think of narcos they think of violence they think of drugs yeah. and and uh, you, you know Hemingway said that um, anyone who says that writing is easy is either a bad writer or a liar and you know, I've always found that I have to have some motivation, some passion, some mission almost when I write a book um, to carry one through, in this case, five years of research, field work and, and execution. Um, and, you know, Colombia is, is not a place of violence and war alone by any means. It is a place, as I write in the book of Colores y Cariño, where the people have endured violence uh, because of their character, which is rooted to a deep spirit of place informed by this landscape that envelops their souls. Look, it's true that for 50 years, Colombia has been racked by a three-way civil war that left 220,000, perhaps as many as 260,000 people dead, a thousand 
100,000 disappeared, 7 million internally displaced, 5 million forced by circumstances or um, uh, uh, to, to, to flee their country. Uh, but it's important to remember that during that entire time, the number of actual combatants on the three sides put together, including all leftist guerrilla groups, the ELN, M19 and, and the FARC, um, the paramilitary groups on the far right who were responsible for 80% of the killings, and the army itself, um, the combatants never numbered more than 200,000, possibly at times as many as 300,000 individuals in a country of 50 million people. So by definition, the vast majority of Colombians were caught innocent victims in the vice of war, um, uh, condemned by one side for collaboration with the other and forced to collaborate with the other, if not to face murderous uh, um, um, uh, revenge by the, the other side. And it's important to note particularly to um, outside of Colombia audiences that this war would not have lasted a day without the infusion of money from the illicit drug trade. At the height of Escobar's um, uh, murderous regime, uh, the Medellin cartel alone was putting 80 tons of cocaine into the United States. Their accountants in Medellin were budgeting $1,000 a week simply to buy elastic bands to wrap the illicit cash in. They generated $17 million in profits every day. And that money was the fuel of the war that um, caused Colombia's suffering. And so imagine for a second, Akash, if Canada had patterns of drug consumption in bars and boardrooms across the country, uh, laws that facilitated a black market trade, but sanctions so lax that they did nothing to curtail that trade, such that fully 85 million Americans, not to mention the dead, the disappeared, the kidnapped, but just simply 85 million Americans would be forced to flee their homes. Well, that is what happened in Colombia. And yet, despite that, through all these terrible years, Colombia maintained its democracy, maintained its civil society, greened its cities, uh, sought restitution with uh, indigenous people that cannot be matched by uh, the performance of any other nation state, created millions of acres of national parks, and paved the way for an economic renaissance as now two generations of Colombian youth uh, forced to flee their country now in the wake of the signing of the peace agreement uh, in Cartagena in 2016 are returning uh, with skill sets in every conceivable endeavor from capital cities around the world. Um, and, and so it's important for people to remember that, that the, the responsibility, obviously Colombians, for their part, bear some responsibility for a trade that they profited from. But ultimate responsibility, I think, for the agonies of Colombia, for the rivers of dead, for the acres of forest cut down, for the lives ruined, the prison cells filled, lies with everyone in every country who's ever used or profited or distributed illicit cocaine. Look. In the last year before the peace, the FARC, the dominant leftist group, was down to about 6,000 cadre, mostly uh, teenagers uh, in search of adventure and, 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 and more importantly, three square meals a day. Now, that 
in that year, FARC made 600 million US dollars from extortion and the trafficking of cocaine. Well, believe me, if you give me the Rosedale Boy Scouts in Toronto and $600 million, I can wreak havoc in all of Ontario. And so it's important for us to remember that in a sense, the world owes a certain responsibility. Everyone you have ever known who has ever used or marketed illicit cocaine, frankly, has the agony of Colombia on their conscience. And so part of what I was trying to do with this book was to reveal how all this came about without shying away from the uh, accounts of the violence, uh, but also revealing with great empathy uh, the reality of what Colombia is, that it's not a place of, of violence and war. It's a homeland of the richest uh, cultural diversity and biological diversity certainly in the Americas and arguably in the world. Definitely. And, and I, uh, again, you know, just, just traveling through Ecuador, I, I was similarly, these climate zones that are just adjacent to each other, it's, it's pretty remarkable. And, 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 and um, what are some of the threats that, you know, whether it's the cocaine trade or, or, or the policies that, that are now kind of being changed, uh, had on the biodiversity and, and, uh, well, I mean, one of the one of the um, the 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 um, the greatest threats is is the anti war uh, anti drug crusade, the fumigation. Look, um, it's important to recognize that that the coca plant, known to the Inca as a divine leaf of immortality, is no more related to the alkaloid derived from it, cocaine hydrochloride, than potatoes are related to vodka. You know, it's interesting. The efforts to eradicate traditional fields of coca leaves began in the 1920s, uh, 50 years before there was a serious problem with illicit black market cocaine. And what happened is that physicians in Lima, Peru in particular, looked up into the Andes and saw all forms of pathology, from illiteracy to poor sanitation to poor public health um, to hunger, and because issues of economic justice, land distribution, uh, inequities of one sort or the other uh, came too close to challenging, in a sense, the bourgeois roots of their own lives in Lima, they had to settle on a culprit. And they decided that coca was a source of all the ills of the Andes because their concern for the well-being of Andean peoples was matched in its intensity only by their ignorance of Andean life. And curiously, in all of those years, from the 1920s, when one crusade after another, launched by United Nations committees who would uh, it, it arrive at Lima Airport to begin their investigations and beginning their investigations by announcing at the airport that all coca must be eradicated, um, never bothered to do the obvious, a simple nutritional assay to find out what this plant that had been used for 4,000 years by virtually every pre-Columbian civilization of the Andes and adjacent parts of the Northwest Amazon, what did it have in it? When we finally did that as a part of a USDA-backed study at the Botanical Museum at Harvard when I was a student in the 1970s, what we discovered horrified our backers at the U.S. government. Yes, the plant had a small amount of the alkaloid in it, 
a half to 1% dry weight, roughly analogous to the amount of caffeine you'd find in a coffee bean. And obviously, if you extracted pure caffeine and injected it or snorted it you'd, or smoked it, you'd have a drug abuse problem, perhaps. Um, but no one notices the irony that every drug abuse conference see narcs bolt for the coffee pot every more, you know, morning at 10 o'clock. <laughs> and in addition to this small amount of alkaloid, Ben, uh, absorbed benignly by the mucous membranes, slowly by the mucous membranes, as a serving as a mild stimulant in a harsh environment, you know, much more benign than coffee or tea or even chocolate. Uh, the plant is chock full of vitamins, so that if you take your daily uh, consumption of leaves by, for example, the Arawakos in the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta, the elder brothers, the sun priests, the descendants of the Tirona civilization in the coastal Caribbean plain of Colombia, their daily consumption of hayo, as coke is known in Colombia, uh, fulfills all the basic di uh, dietary requirements for vitamins. The plant also has enzymes that enhance the body's ability to digest carbohydrate at high elevation, which makes it perfect for a potato-based diet of the Andes. The plant also um, has more calcium in it than any plant ever studied by science, which again made it perfect for a diet that traditionally lacked a dairy product. So one simple nutritional study uh, that could have been done in the 1920s uh, revealed that this was a plant that had been used with no evidence of toxicity, let alone addiction, for over 4,000 years in the Andes. And because of the nature of the plant, the genus itself, Erythroxylin, a pantropical genus of several hundred species, um, um, which tend to grow in disturbed habitats. So it, it's a plant that grows readily. It grows in the remote reaches of Colombia, inaccessible areas. It has three um, harvests a year. So in value, it dwarfs the potential revenues of any other conceivable cultigen, in some cases by a thousand fold. So we know that the campesinos um, are going to grow coca. They'd be foolish not to. So what we need to do is, is create a legal market for nutraceutical consumption of coca as a benign and mild stimulant. It's a much more useful stimulant than coffee, for example. Uh, it helps you in a very gentle way uh, um, focus. It, it's not abrasive. Um, it, it doesn't cause gastrointestinal disturbances as coffee can do if people drink too much of it. And it really is the divine leaf of immortality. And so what we need to do is give the campesinos a legal outlet for the crops that we know they are going to grow. And instead, under pressure from the American government that insists on exporting its problem, the fact that millions of its own people, for whatever reason, live in a society whereby they need to seek solace uh, in the in the in the false promises of a drug best used by your dentist to anesthetize your mouth before pulling a tooth, it's their problem if their people want to do that. It's certainly not Columbia problem or anyone else's problem. But instead, they try to export their problem rather than treating it as a public health challenge at home, and they insist uh, or they try to insist that Columbia fumigates. So you have to ask the question: Why should Columbia? Uh, put its richest asset, its biodiversity, at risk, let alone the health of its children, to satisfy the needs of a country 
that has so many uh, social challenges and failures that it's it, it, it that, that that the highest uh, cause of mortality for its citizens below the age of fifty is not car accidents anymore, but the use of illicit, uh, of illicit legal opiate addictive drugs, uh, and add on top of that the uh, the epidemic of methamphetamine, not to mention the obsession with cocaine, and you see a portrait of a society that would do a whole lot better to turn inward and look after itself rather than trying to, um, you know, export the problem to the world. Coca leaf, properly marketed, uh, licensed, and exported, could could dwarf the the uh, the the economic uh, value of coffee. And coffee, of course, was born in distant Abyssinia. Uh, coca is a child of Colombia. Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, you, you mentioned how you don't shy away from the, the violence of the, the history surrounding coca. And, and a lot of it, uh, as you say, is, is in order to, to show an alternative. And, um, and, you know, when reading this book, you know, you're presented with the kind of expected host of characters, Bolivar, Escobar, Santos, but also, you know, it's rife with your own friends and acquaintances and travel companions. And, um, I've, I've heard you speak about how travel writing shouldn't be overly tinged with, with the writer's own being. And I recently read a Bruce Chatwin's in Patagonia, which, which really does do that. And, and I wondered how you yeah. made it so and how you made yeah, this book different. Really, that's a wonderful question, Akash. You know, I, I love Bruce Chatwin's book in Patagonia, but I found his song lines to be unreadable. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, uh, I actually have a, I, I teach a little bit, of, I, it's a literary anthropological writing at UBC. And and one little thing, I, 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 I'm self, a self-taught writer, so I, I, I'm hesitant to tell people how to write. But one thing I urge travel writers to pay attention to is the use of the word I. I go out of my way not to use that word. In fact, I had an occasion to count the, the number of times in Magdalena which is a first-person travel account. Um, I use the word "I" barely over a hundred times in 350 pages, because if you if you evoke the scene, you don't need to tell anyone you were there. And and for example, um, I wasn't interested in telling my story. I wanted to write a biography of Colombia through the metaphor that of the river that made it possible. Um, this was sort of socio- sociology by serendipity. I would turn up in any community and wait around until I found someone who had something to say that the world needed to hear. And that is the essence of good storytelling, according uh, to, to Hemingway. Um, you know, I had, no, I had no temptation whatsoever to kayak. I mean, I'm a professional whitewater guide. I could have readily kayaked or paddled the Magdalena from source to mouth, or I could have hitched rides on barges one after another and make my way up the river. But I had no interest in telling a story of of self, um, I I was interested in telling the story of a place, uh, you know. And uh, it's interesting in in nonfiction literature since between 1965 and and now, the use of the word I has more than doubled, if not tripled. Uh, and we have this sort of uh, self obsessed society. I remember just as an aside when I first went to was recruited to the National Geographic as an explorer in residence. Uh, th- this was part of their conservation in- initiative, and as they moved heavily into conservation with a new message for the world that if you know in the first century we 
told you about the world. Now we're going to help you save it. That was the idea. Uh, they recruited seven individuals to personify that mission. Jane Goodall for primatology, Bob Ballard, who had found the Titanic, uh, Johann Reinhardt, the high altitude archaeologist, Sylvia Earle, the great oceanographer, and I was fortunate to be recruited as their social anthropologist. But immediately the marketing and publicity people at Geographic called both Johan and I and asked us to send them all the video and uh, photographs of ourselves in the field. And both Johan and I kind of guffawed because in all of my um, uh, collection, an archive of tens of thousands of images, I'm a photographer, I've done two books for the National Geographic of photographs, I probably have 10 pictures of myself in the field. We just come from a pre-selfie generation when, when it never crossed your mind to focus on self in that way. And I remember when I told the people at Geographic that there wasn't much material, they sort of asked me, well, did you really go to the Amazon? They, they couldn't <laughs> believe that I had done these travels. So in, in this book, you know, one of, one of the, the, the beautiful stories about this book is that I had written um, a biography of my professor, Richard M. Schultes, a legendary plant explorer who sparked the psychedelic era with his discovery of the magic mushrooms in Mexico in 1938. And then in 1941, he had disappeared in the forests of Colombian Amazon, where he stayed for 12 uninterrupted years, you know, traveling down unknown rivers, living amongst unknown peoples, all the time enchanted by the wonder of the neotropical rainforest. And I became an acolyte of Schultes. I got my PhD under his direction. And I, as a gift to him, in a sense, I wanted to, I wrote his biography of him. And that book came out in Spanish in 2001, a time when Columbia was virtually a failed state. And the great strength of the book was a translation by a wonderful poet, the late Nicholas Sesquan. And it's really Nicholas's book. And it came out and it became this unexpected hit in Colombia, not just with naturalists and anthropologists, but with people from all walks of society. I was once in Doha uh, in guitar, coming out of the shower in the business class lounge at the airport, and my cell phone rang, and it was Marta Ochoa. And well, the Ochoa brothers were the one half of the Medellin cartel, and she was saying that it, the book had meant a lot to her brother, um, who was in prison in, uh, in in Georgia, and would I be prepared to go and visit him? I mean, that's the kind of the influence wow. the book had. But the point of, about that book is that it, 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 in Spanish, it came out 150 pages longer, uh, you know, almost 700 pages, and, and there was not a single negative thing about Columbia. It was a pure celebration of the wonder of the place. And that that became almost like a map of dreams for two generations of young Colombians who were not able to travel within their own country. And, and because of the, the reputation that that book had and, and, and the fact that I've always been not an apologist for Colombia, but an advocate of the nation to the extent that the Nobel laureate for peace, uh, President Juan Manuel Santos um, in 2018 made me an honorary Colombian citizen. Uh, and that book, El Rio, was selected by the National Library as one of the first 25 of 200 books to be selected by the country in honor of the, of the, of the, of the 200th year anniversary of its independence. Uh, and it's the only book written by a, a foreigner um, to be selected like that. It really hit a nerve. And, and I think because of that, that obviously led to my connection to the uh, Savi Botanica team that I mentioned earlier in our interview 
uh, and, and doors were simply open to me in Colombia. And so I was able to sort of, um, and, and because I myself had spent so much time as a young lad in Colombia, you know, I first went to Colombia when I was 14 alone. And, um, and I later returned when I was 19 uh, as a young botanical explorer. And so I was very familiar with the street of Colombia. You know, I, I, uh, I lived for a, a dollar, two, three dollars a day. I, I slept where I reached and I, where my hat fell. I was comfortable in any conceivable scene in Colombia. And uh, uh, because of that, the country kind of lay itself open to me like a gift. And I, and I followed that until I, and, and in a way the characters in the book, every character in the book symbolizes some, some element of Colombia's agony and of its hopes, you know, from someone like Morita de los Manatis, who was just a, 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 a farmer um, who, who created a relationship with manatees where he became almost the avatar of these beautiful creatures. And he would look after them in the dry seasons when the, 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 the wetlands would dry up. And, and uh, he, 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 cre- he became this powerful force in his community and he'd face down both the FARC and the paramilitaries. And, and uh, he, he worked with school children. And I asked him one day, we're walking around a little wetland. And he mentioned that around that one wetland, they had collected 75 species of butterflies. And I was astonished because that's half to a third of what we have in all of Canada, just around this little, little wetland. And, and uh, I mentioned that to him. And he said, ah, but hermano tiene que entender que en Colombia... Un mariposa es solamente un flor que puede volar, por eso tenemos tanto. Uh, brother, brother, you have, I understand, but you have to understand that in Colombia, a butterfly is just a flower that knows how to fly. That's why we have so many. And, and Colombia is like that. You can have these sort of magical encounters. Like, I'll, I'll just share one, uh, one experience that really didn't get into the book. But I was with Mamo Camillo, who was one of the sun priests of the Arawakos, an old friend, because I've worked in the mountains there since 1974. And uh, uh, Mamo Camillo said something very profound to me. He said, La paz no vale nada si es solamente una manera en que los varios lados pueden unificarse para mantener una guerra contra la naturaleza. Tenemos que hacer paz con todo el mundo. And what he was saying is peace won't matter if it's only an excuse for the three sides of the conflict to come together to maintain a war against nature. It's time for us to make peace with the entire world. Well, the Atahualcos are the sun priests, descendants of the Tyrona. They, they remain in a bloodstained continent. Um, the, uh, the, 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 the spiritual uh, um, source, the uh, advisors, the leaders of the Atahualcos, the Kogi, the Wiwa, um, who literally believe their prayers and rituals maintain the cosmic balance of the world. And as Mam Camillo told me that um, wonderful expression, he also said that President Santos was planning to come and visit their main community, Namasimake, high in the mountains, um, for the first time a president had ever visited them. And he asked if I could possibly um, be there to help welcome the president. And I, I said I'd try, and I, I knew the only way I could logistically get there, given the time frame, would be to hitch a ride on the president's helicopter. And so I, I uh, made a phone call to a friend who called a friend who, before I knew it, word came back from the Palacio Nariño in Bogota that the president would be delighted to have Profi Davis, as he calls me, um, uh, come with him. So I flew from Barranquilla 
to uh, Bogota, a sergeant from the army uh, graciously met me at the airport and took me to the presidential plane, and we flew back to the coast of Ayudupar. And en route, all of the president's aides were peppering him with statistics about what he should say in his national speech. And I sheepishly put up my hand, and I said in Spanish what what um, Mamu Camillo had said to me. I said, you know, sir, you have to understand that statistics mean nothing to the Mamos. What matters is what's in your heart. And President Santos made that the theme of his speech that, that tweeted out to the nation. And while we were with the Mamos, the elders took us into the sacred temple to have a gift exchange. And President Santos in, introduced all of his party, including his ministers. And when he got around to me, he was very gracious and generous with his remarks. But he was interrupted by one of the Mamos who said, no, no, Presidente, you don't have to tell us about that guy. He's our ambassador in Washington, D.C. And in a way, that was true because the delegations would always stay with us when they were lobbying the ministry or the, um, the World Bank or whatever. But then we um, flew back to Bogota. And just in time for me to jump on an airplane and get back to Barranquilla for the first night of the legendary Barranquilla Carnaval, uh, and that night, my daughter, with her Colombian cumbia band, was playing on stage with Carlos Vivas, a legendary um, rock star of, of Colombia, in front of 10,000 people. And, you know, I enjoyed the father's incredible pride to see her on stage like that. And then the next day, I flew to Medellin, where word came that um, President Alvaro Uribe, the predecessor of Santos, a great rival of Santos, was 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 there to meet me at his Hacienda and I, my driver t- took me up to the, um, the farm, and en route my friend who had facilitated the meeting called me to say it was going to be very busy with people. It was a Sunday, but maybe I could just get in a word about our dream of cleaning up the river Magdalena uh, as a symbol of peace and purification, um, and new hope. And I got to the farm and went through security and found myself alone with one sweet woman standing at the front door, and that was um, uh, Nina Moreno, uh, President Uribe's beloved wife. And there was no one else at the farm but me. And as we walked through the living room, she sort of innocently said, you know, Profi, have you had lunch yet? And I ended up having a nice Sunday lunch with President Uribe and his grandchildren. And then uh, President Uribe said, okay, Profi, let's go talk about the river. And for two hours, we talked, and he has an encyclopedic knowledge of his country, and, uh, you know, he's a man who doesn't mistake activity for results. And he gave me all kinds of um, advice on how we could actually mobilize this campaign. And, and as I left, I, 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 I showed him a photograph um, that happened to include a shot of President Santos. And the, they're great rivals. And I could feel his, his nervousness, a, a sort of edge to him. And I, as he thanked me for helping Colombia, I was able to thank him and say that history will say that it took two men uh, to make possible the conditions of peace in Colombia. And that was all within 72 hours, all of those events. So that's kind of the magic of Colombia. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and, and and you touched briefly uh, before on, I think you'd put it as agonies and hopes, but, um, you know, I, one of the themes that, that, that I kind of felt was recurring throughout the book is this intersection of, of history and myth, and uh, and what memory means in, in many ways, and um, and there's you know these myths that surround the river, and uh, there's also 
you discuss how legacy of figures such as Escobar can, you know, for some be mutated from history into myth. And, uh, and, and there's a beautiful quote I thought by um, Juan Gonzalo Betancourt, who, who you meet, who writes that, I need to forget to continue living. So I, how does Colombia remember itself today? How is it remembering itself today? Well, you know, it's interesting. What, what Juancito was saying is that, you know, there's this sort of cult of remembrance, um, which is part of a reconciliation process. You know, the, the look, um, you know, let, let's explain the violence for a minute. I mean, what happened is that you had, you know, you've always had a divide in Colombia going back to the revolution between um I'll say left and right, although it's not as simple as that, but people who at the time of the revolution, led by Bolivar, uh, men like Santander, who, who, who really hated the Spanish, and they were all children of the Enlightenment, and they, they shared what became in America a kind of a Jeffersonian ideal of a, 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 of, 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 a, of a society, a democracy, freed of the tyranny of absolute faith. And on the other hand, you had more conservative elements who saw the revolution as a means to displace one oligarchy with another themselves. And that schism has always been in Colombian history. And it's accentuated by topography, which always meant for a weak federal state um, and and the, the 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 empowerment of local, in effect, almost warlords, uh, perfectly um, willing to exploit that mutual reciprocity of hatred. In 1948, Jorge Gaitan, a symbol of the left, a symbol of the hopes of the poor, was assassinated, and the result was a riot in Bogota called the Bogotazo, where 6,000 people died and the city burned. And out of that came a civil war, La Violencia in which entire parts of the country would be colored blue or red and therefore invite the retribution of the other side. That finally came to an end in pure exhaustion with a national accord in which the liberal and the conservative party agreed to share power on an alternative basis um, uh, for X period of time. And, and that brought stability and, 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 and peace to the country for a time. And then in the surge of leftist rebellion and revolution, epitomized by Castro's successful overthrow of Baptista, but throughout that whole era, there was revolutionary struggles going on throughout Latin America, throughout the world for that matter. And, and out of that era, the early 1960s, emerged any number of leftist groups, the M.A. Diecinueve, um, the ELN, um, the FARC, and these leftist groups um, um, could be anywhere at any time. And the federal state was weak. The army was but 100,000 people, men and uh, women. And, and so the rich landowners um, had to defend themselves. And so they began to support militias, right-wing militias, right? And the whole idea of these militias was that, you know, th the problem for them was that they couldn't depend on the army and they and the FARC could strike anywhere anytime unexpectedly and because these militias by definition couldn't be everywhere in a country as geographically challenged as Colombia their presence had to be and that's why in a sense they settled on terror so if you take a band of innocent people uh, you know tie them to a tree and, and literally dismember them with a chainsaw and throw the pieces into the Rio Magdalena and they float down you know 
the river with with uh, vultures uh, perched on top, you know, eating their flesh as carrion, you send a message. And that's why the brutal paramilitaries were the ones who, in the end, were responsible for 80% of, 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 the, of the killings. Um, and, and, and the point is that the leftist groups and the paramilitaries, neither of them would have stayed in business uh, had it not been for the enormous money coming in from the cocaine trade. And cocaine has a way of blackening everybody it touches. And, and, um, uh, and, and so in 2002, Uribe, who was himself a, 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 a scion of the, of the right, his own father had been murdered by the FARC. Uh, he came in as president with Juan Manuel Santos as a, a, a man of the right, uh, with a policy of a hard hand. Uh, and, and with Santos as defense minister, they went after um, the FARC. In 2006, um, Uribe um, demilitarized the paramilitaries. It was like Nixon going to China. Only he could have done it. Now, it didn't mean they disappeared. Many of them went underground. The terms were incredibly lenient. But of course, the point was that the paramilitaries, the Paracos, weren't about to walk in from the jungle into a jail cell. As Santos would later say, you make peace with your enemies, and peace inv- involves compromises. And then Plan Colombia um, comes in, probably the only American initiative in Latin American history that's actually done good. It gave enough money as Colombia became Colum- uh, America's third largest recipient of foreign aid that allowed the Colombian military to really become a professional force. And it quadrupled in size and sent a message to the leftist guerrillas that the whole field of play had changed. And this is what allowed eventually, um, uh, when Santos became president in 2010, uh, everybody expected him to follow the the harsh ways of, of Uribe's regime. But he instead turned toward peace and devoted himself 100% to bringing the FARC in from the wild, if you will. And that culminated in the Havana Agreement. Uh, And again, this was an agreement that um, had uh, hundreds of clauses at a cost of $45 billion to implement. But above all, it was seen as being, it was relatively lenient because you weren't going to get the FARC. I mean, a small guerrilla group with $600 million a year could have fought on indefinitely. They had already fought for 45 years. Uh, and so, of course, the terms were lenient. And then the problem came is that when Santos constitutionally could not run again, uh, Duque, uh, a, a candidate um, of Uribe's side, um, uh, split a divided field on the left and became president, in part having run against the lax terms of Santos's peace agreement. Even though within a year of the signing of that agreement, uh, murder rates, homicide rates in Colombia dropped to levels not seen since 1975. And so when the, when the um, new Duque government came in, they were not fast to occupy the vast areas of Colombia abandoned by the demilitarization of the FARC. And into those areas came bandidos, dissident FARC, the cartels, right? And, and that led to more killing of civic leaders, even as, in general, peace uh, came to the country. And, and Colombia's curse remains cocaine. As long as countries 
make that drug illegal until there is the cleansing stroke of legalization to destroy the illicit trade. It's hard to know how Colombia will ever establish the pure tranquil peace and stability that it seeks. It will never go back to the violence of recent years. The people are simply uh, exhausted. They've had enough. But at the same time, true stability will, will, will be impossible as it would be impossible in any country uh, with that kind of corrosive uh, uh, criminal element um, so empowered by, by money. And at the same time, the other challenge for Colombia is that as oil prices, the major source of revenue, have dropped, uh, Colombia has also dealt with the largest humanitarian crisis in the history of the Americas. And it's, it's interesting for Americans in particular to contemplate that whereas the Trump administration was turning away desperate families at the Mexican border, uh, building a wall that was in defiance of all American ideals when it comes to immigration and generosity and the huddled masses of the world seeking sanctuary in America. Uh, families torn apart to the extent that today there are hundreds of children where the U.S. authorities do not know the identity of their parents, uh, um, uh, an atrocious record. And of course, women and children arriving at the American border because of the dislocation caused by the drug trade, which has now moved its trafficking networks to Central America with the Caribbean shut down by the U.S. Coast Guard and, uh, and surveillance. And, of course, the dislocation that began in the Reagan years with the Contra Wars. And, and so we turn away families that number in the hundreds, whereas Colombia, without fanfare, has absorbed at least 1.8 million Venezuelan refugees who have fled the Maduro regime. And they've arrived with nothing but what's on their backs. And the Colombians have not turned them away. They have housed them. They have fed them. They've given them medical care, put their kids in school. There's never been such a gracious gesture from a country that needs every penny it has to implement the terms of the peace agreement. And so Colombia deserves an enormous amount of credit for that, um, that, that gesture that was never in doubt that the country would make. Yeah, it's 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 remarkable, really, especially given uh, you know how little uh, other nations did do. And um, Professor Davis, uh, perhaps we could uh, I could ask one last question. And you know we're we're living through this kind of uh, a very unexpected year right now. And in in, in your yeah I, earlier this year, I did note that you wrote a, a wonderful article about uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic. But do you anticipate there being any immediate consequences of this in unique to Colombia or, or to the environment in Colombia or, or, or travel there? Uh, you know, I think, I think that um, one unfortunate thing for Colombia in terms of COVID was that uh, Colombia had emerged as the most desirable uh, country to visit by all kinds of international polls on the eve of COVID because people were discovering that the only danger today in Colombia is a distinct possibility that you'll go there and never want to come home. Um, uh, so, you know, that reputation holds, and I hope this book will, in a sense, be a map of dreams for outsiders who may want to consider going to Columbia. I think this book will become a kind of go-to book in the way that One River was for people of another generation who want to learn about Columbia. Um, and, uh, you know, it's significant, I think, that one of the endorsements of the book comes from Hector Abad, 
who's one of Colombia and Latin America's great writers. And, and uh, Hector is famously uh, uh, somewhat embittered about his own country for good reasons. His father was murdered. Uh, and there have been a handful of deaths in a, in a sea of misery in the last 50 years in Colombia um, that have really shaken the entire nation. And the, the death of uh, Hector's father was one of them. Uh, completely senseless, cruel, uh, evil. And uh, he was forced to flee to Italy, where I met him. And um, he's now, of course, back in Colombia, great writer, great journalist, great professor, beautifully beautiful man, a great friend. Uh, but, but Hector wrote that the book Magdalena, um, he said, only Wade could make me love my country again. And he called the book a love letter to Colombia. And then that was the greatest kind of compliment I could possibly have gotten, because that's really what I set out to do. Um, not shy from the truth of Columbia, you'll anyone who reads the book will get a complete overview as to what happened in Medellin, the rebirth of Medellin that you referred to, Akash, earlier. Um, the fact that Medellin at one point in the 1980s had three w- w- was the most dangerous city on earth with, with uh, homicide rates three times Beirut. Um, and today it's been ranked as one of the most desirable cities in the world to live in. And that transformation happened because of the spirit of the Colombian people and the leadership in particular, Sergio Fajardo, who was a mayor of Medellin, later governor of uh, Antioquia, and, and God willing will become soon the president of Colombia. And uh, so, so um, you know, um, you know, Colombia, as, as a, a, a wonderful uh, fisherman said to me, is, 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 is waiting for you. Um, it's a beautiful country. Come and see it. And the best we could ever do for Colombia um, is to is to is to answer that plea and that welcome, that invitation, and go and see for yourself um, the wonder of this extraordinary land. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that does come through in the book. I myself, you know, I can't wait for uh, the travel ban to be lifted, and, and hopefully that'll be a top destination. Um, Professor Davis, thank you so much for, for taking the time to, to speak with me today. Um, the book for our listeners has been Magdalena, River of Dreams. I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, thank you, everyone, for, for tuning in. And uh, thank you, Professor Davis. Thank you, Akash.